This episode is brought to you by Habitat HQ, the best hostel in Melbourne. You're listening to Australian History Part 2. So if you have not listened to Australian History Part 1 or Australia 101, I definitely recommend listening to those before you get into this one. But without further ado, let's start the show. So to start today's episode, I want to tell you the story of a man and a woman, specifically John and Elizabeth MacArthur, uh, two of Australia's earliest colonial elites, uh, who I believe whose lives really define the early age of Australia and really capture, you know, some of the very rapid development that occurred in the country. So John MacArthur was a Scottish career soldier and farmer. He arrived in the colony of Sydney uh, with the second fleet that arrived in 1790 as a lieutenant in the New South Wales Corps. He very quickly rose through the ranks until he was the paymaster and superintendent of public works. Um, And in 1793, he acquired 100 acres of land. And since he was the first man to clear it, uh, basically make it usable land to grow crops, using convict labor, he was awarded an extra 100 acres. So he immediately had 200 acres of prime pastoral land, and he started seeing some pretty tidy profits almost immediately just selling food to colonists. In 1796, he he retired from his position in the army to focus more on his economic pursuits, specifically at his farm. And he's famous for a lot of things. One thing that he did is he pioneered the merino wool industry in Australia. So he bought a prized merino sheep from a royal Spanish flock in 1797 and was able to basically continue the breed in Australia. And because of this, merino wool very quickly became Australia's most valuable export. And because of this, uh, it would dramatically increase his own wealth and prestige in the colony in the coming years. He was known for frequently quarreling with high-ranking colonial officials, and this got him in hot water a couple of times. One situation was so significant that he was actually sent back to England in 1801 to be tried in the courts on minor charges, but managed to return to Australia in 1805 with a special grant giving him even more land. Specifically, he was given 5,000 acres of prime pastoral land wherever he wanted it to be. Um, And this was just another way that he started making a ton of money. Um, and this pretty much guaranteed his rise to the very tippity-tippity-top echelons of Australian society. In 1806, when a new governor arrived to the colony, Sir William Bly, uh, Bly and MacArthur almost immediately started having a very antagonistic relationship over the nature of um, MacArthur's commercial enterprises. Uh, when ordered to appear before the governor's courts, MacArthur refused and, with the help of the regimental commander, led the Rum Rebellion, as it was later called, basically imprisoning the governor and taking control of the colony. As a thanks uh, and a set of recognition for MacArthur's help, he was appointed as the colonial secretary of the rebel government. Uh, And the rebellion was kind of weird in that it wasn't actually a rebellion against the British government itself just against uh 
the governor, Sir William Bly. So when a new governor arrived in 1810 to take over the colony, it pretty much just ended immediately. Uh, because of his involvement in what happened, MacArthur was sent to England where he stayed for about eight and a half years with his two sons uh, and basically faced trial with the colonial with the courts in England, but they didn't find him guilty. The only thing they did was just say, you can't go back to Australia. So he stayed there with his two sons in, in England and just kind of toured Europe and went to school and did things like that. And while he was gone, his wife, Elizabeth MacArthur, pretty much just ran his entire farming operation. Uh, eventually, when he did return to Australia, he was able to take his place right back where he started uh, with all of his land and all of his money and his amazing wife. Uh, and back in the colony, he continued his development of wool, cattle, and horses, and even developed Australia's first commercial vineyard. Notably, later on in his life, he was a founding investor in the Australian Agricultural Company and the Bank of Australia. And his family would remain a bastion of the Australian elite for many, many years. In my opinion, he's arguably the most important single man to influence the early Australian economy. And he definitely set the course for its economic trajectory going forward. So now that we know the story of John MacArthur, I want to start talking about more broad general themes. Specifically, I want to ask the questions, you know, who did he lead in Australia? Um, what did Australian look like during his time there and after? And who were the elite? So the early economy of Australia originally consisted mainly of subsistence agricultural farmers. Uh, but very early on, because of the efforts of John MacArthur, uh, wool became an early and easy export staple just due to its durability and transit to England. Um, and generally speaking, early settlers could buy land cheaply, but many chose the route of simply squatting on land and were able to earn huge profits just due to the low overhead and high rewards for this practice. And this social group later on would become known as the squatocracy, and they were basically a powerful interest group of wealthy ranchers. In 1851, a gold rush began in the newly formed Victoria Colony, coinciding with the gold rush of 1849 in California. Uh, and because of this gold rush, the population exploded from around 76,000 people in 1850 to about 530,000 people by 1859, just in the Victoria Colony. Specifically, the people that were coming over to prospect for gold, a lot of them were well-educated Englishmen. As a result of the economic boom fueled by gold and wool, Combined with acute labor shortages in the Victoria region, wages in Melbourne were pushed upwards and upwards until they were actually the highest in the world. In Melbourne specifically, labor unions for different industries became common, and things like the eight-hour work week were successfully negotiated. Uh, and at this point in time, Melbourne became known as the working man's paradise just because it had the highest wages in the world. While this may sound pretty amazing, there's one thing I should mention that is I wouldn't call it a silver lining. I'd call it the opposite of a silver lining. Um, basically, trade unions didn't want employers to undercut them by importing cheap Chinese labor. And as a result of this, uh, this is the beginnings of the white Australia policy, essentially an immigration policy that excluded non-white immigrants from entering Australia. 
Uh, so the gold rush impacted wages and working rights, but also had a huge impact on the development of democracy, not only in Australia, but also in other parts of the British Empire. So the Eureka Rebellion in 1854 played a major role in these democratic developments. Essentially what happened is a group of miners were really upset with inadequate colonial administration with regards to diggings and the gold licensing system and taxation surrounding gold mining. And so these group of miners set up a stockade in Ballarat, a major site of mining during this time. And it was very quickly squashed by the British authorities. You know, they never had a chance and the army was very quick to put them in their place. However, Months after this, a royal commission made sweeping reforms addressing most of the grievances that the miners brought up specifically. Critically, voting rights for the miners were among those reforms. So after this, democracy pretty much swept through Australia. Uh, In the 1850s, responsible government came about. Essentially what this means is that London retained power over foreign affairs, defense, and international shipping, but local democratic legislative assemblies were formed in the colonies. So New South Wales got a legislature in 1855, Victoria, Tasmania, and South Australia in 1856, and Western Australia in 1890. As I mentioned earlier, these democratic developments occurred across the British Empire, also occurring in New Zealand and Canada during this time period. What's really unique about Australia is they actually had some very special cutting-edge things that would come into play in other democracies around the world later on. So, for example, they introduced the world's first secret ballot, and voting enfranchisement very quickly was granted to all males over 21 in most Australian colonies by 1858. Full female suffrage was granted later in 1897, shortly after New Zealand. Uh, And it was actually the first country in the world to allow women to stand for election, which I think is pretty awesome. The Commonwealth of Australia itself, so essentially the federal government of Australia, was established in 1901, basically creating a federation of Australian states and the beginnings of one unified Australia. One thing that's really interesting about this is that New Zealand was actually invited to join the new federal Australian government, but they declined. So Australia at the turn of the century was a really interesting place. Uh, Around 4 million people were living there right at the end of the 20th century. Sydney and Melbourne were definitely the most dominant cities on the continent and were and still are very English in style. Railroads and telegraphs crisscrossed the continent and all states but Western Australia were were linked by rail. There was a definitely high relative standard of living for Australians at this time and a lot of that had to do with the developments that I talked about earlier. So now we're starting to enter the 20th century. Uh, The first major conflict outside of helping New Zealanders with the New Zealand wars during the 1860s was the Boer War in South Africa. So this was essentially a war between independent Dutch settlers and the English colonial authorities, and 16,000 Aussies volunteered to fight in this war. And they were known for serving valiantly. Specifically, They had a reputation for initiative, insubordination, and bravery. Uh, And many Bushmen from Australia were able to fight with Boer guerrillas on their own terms. Uh, What I find kind of fascinating is that this is very similar to the reputation of Americans' Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. Uh, And There's no reason I'm bringing that up. I just think it's a nice little parallel. Um, In World War I, 315,000 Australians served overseas. And they fought on pretty much every front. 
Most famously, they fought in the doomed Gallipoli invasion against the Turks. And during the entirety of World War I, 65% of Australian soldiers were either killed or wounded. Australia independently signed the Treaty of Versailles to end World War I. And one thing that you won't read in every historical textbook that you find is that Australian and American opposition to a Japanese clause in the treaty, known as the Racial Equality Proposal, effectively blocked its passage and sowed the seeds for Japan's involvement in World War II just because it alienated Japan from the League of Nations very early on. Uh, One thing that's kind of crazy about that is that that little statistic, in fact, is not mentioned in the Australian history textbook that I've been using for some of my research. So I apologize if, you know, perhaps that Eurocentric white bias has infiltrated other aspects of the show, but I'm doing my best, I promise. Uh, During the Depression, they were hit really, really hard. Uh, Australia at this time was dependent on exports, primarily of primary goods like ore, wheat, and wool, and rising tariffs around the world really hurt Australian exporters. During World War II, Australia sent many troops to fight the Nazis in the North African theater specifically, Uh, and the European theater left Australia very exposed when Japan declared war after Pearl Harbor. British fear of Japanese invasion was really bolstered by the loss of other British colonies. Uh, So specifically, Singapore and Hong Kong were lost very early on in the conflict. And later on, submarines were spotted in Sydney Harbor attacking Australian shipping. And there were even air raids on Darwin during the war. Uh, There is significant evidence as well that the British War Department saw Australian territory as expendable. And Churchill even told the Australian Minister of Foreign Affairs in 1942, and I quote, We would have got you back after the war. With the entry of Americans into the Pacific Theater, this greatly relieved the pressure on Australians. And during the conflict, Australians fought side by side with Americans to achieve victory. Inside of Australia, the effects of the war are innumerable. innumerable. So uh, in 1942, a Labour government took over, and during this time they adopted the Statute of Westminster, essentially making Australia an independent sovereign nation in the British Empire. And what this means basically is that British Parliament had no say in Australia's foreign or domestic policy, but they remained in the British Commonwealth. During the war itself, Australia shifted all domestic production towards wartime ends, And this had the effect of dramatically increasing the productivity of Australia's economy. Similarly, they started adopting Keynesian economic policies uh, and other social policies similar to things like the New Deal in the U.S., you know, things like Social Security and uh, Medicare and things like that. And what's really fascinating is that Australia emerged from World War II with no overseas debt and significant industrial capacity. After World War II, fear of a resurgent Japan led to two major policy decisions. The first one is that they signed a treaty called ANZUS or ANZUS with Australia, New Zealand, and the USA. And this treaty was signed in 1951, essentially putting Australia closer to the USA than ever before. Since the signing of this treaty, Australia has fought in every major conflict alongside the USA since World War II. Additionally, the government worked hard to increase the rate of immigration for national defense purposes. So, as I mentioned 
earlier in the show, at the turn of the century, Australia only had about 4 million inhabitants. Uh, So between 1945 and 1985, about 4.2 million immigrants arrived to Australia, 40% of whom came from Britain and Ireland. The other group that came, a lot of them were Italians and Eastern Europeans. Uh, This made Australia significantly more diverse and gave Australia some really good food. Finally, instead of just being influenced by the English, they started getting some good pizza and some good meat the balls. Um, Post-World War II in the 50s and 60s, like the USA, Australia emerged with a strong economy geared toward a industrialized world. Relatively high prices for traditional Australian commodities like wool, wheat, and minerals, heavy government spending on infrastructure, and rapid expansion of manufacturing activity in the economy really led to a huge boom for Australia. Additionally, Australia had some strong tariff protections for Australian industry. Uh, They had a steady flow of relatively cheap immigrant labor, and they had increasingly important trade relationships with Japan and the USA. So all these things were really part of the reason that Australia came out of World War II with a very strong economy. In 1973, Australia experienced a series of shocks that threw its economy into a a tailspin. So the first one I mentioned was the OPEC oil embargo. Essentially, OPEC stands for Oil Producing Export Countries. And in 1973, to protest Western actions in the Middle East, they started blocking exports of oil to Western nations. Additionally, In 1973, Britain entered the European Union, and as more of a global trend, there was basically just more international competition in traditional markets where Australians had strong trade relationships. The result that came with this was stagflation. Basically, because of the factors that I talked about earlier, the Australian government used its traditional Keynesian response of spending more money to stimulate the economy, but it didn't do much. And because of unemployment and the rising trade deficit and rising costs, the economy just didn't really do very well. And they experienced about 10 years of really bad economic times in Australia. Then a big shift happened. So during the 80s, specifically from 1983 to 1996, the Australian Labor Party reformed the Australian economy in response to the issues of the 70s. So they privatized many government corporations They deregulated parts of the labor market. They floated the Australian dollar for the first time. They reduced trade protections. And this is all an attempt to make Australian industries more competitive on the global scale as they were dealing with the issues that I mentioned earlier. Uh, The only notable social policy that really was enacted during this time is that they nationalized health care and under a reformed Medicare model. America, you might be wanting to take some notes. Um, And the result in general was positive. Australia has been recession-free since 1991, which has led to be called by many observers the lucky country. Um, One thing that's important to note is that during this time period, many other nations around the world, like the UK, the USA, and New Zealand, followed this exact formula pretty much to the T. So, Nothing highly unusual about what Australia did during this time. Um, Some notable social issues during the late 20th century. In 1975, the white Australia policy that I mentioned earlier came to an end. Uh, 
and this ended automatic preference for immigration from European countries, specifically folks from the British Isles who had previously been automatically given citizenship upon arrival. Uh, that ended. Additionally, there were some major protests against the Vietnam War that happened during this time, very similar to some of the movements that were going on in the USA. The women's rights movement achieved many successes during this time. And just like many other parts of the world, Australia was hit pretty hard by the 80s AIDS epidemic. Additionally, during this time, Aboriginal rights really came into focus in Australia. So Aboriginal people were giving voting rights in 1962, and there was a steady termination of racial discrimination policies around Australia. At the forefront of this were Aboriginal people, and they modeled their movement after the equal rights movements of those happening simultaneously in the USA with black um, civil rights activists during this time. And what I really want to note is that there's many parallels between American Indians in the USA and Aboriginals in Australia in terms of just their involvement in Australia's modern society. Generally speaking, there's just still a high level of relative exclusion from society. Like you don't see that much integration between white Australians and Aboriginal Australians, which I think is really unfortunate. But at least on a government scale, uh, they are trying to promote integration by doing things like giving preferential admission to Aboriginal people who apply to universities and giving them better job protections when they do enter the labor market and things like that. But there's still definitely a degree of separation that I think is really unfortunate considering how important Aboriginal people are to Australian history and, you know, just the sad nature of how they have been treated in past. Looking at the 21st century, Australia has benefited specifically from the growth of Asian economies. Uh, they are a major exporter of raw materials used in production in the rapidly industrializing economies of Asia, so that's why they've benefited specifically. Additionally, due to the increased efficiency gain through the use of computers, there has been a new wave of efficiency gains in the Australian economy, which is pretty much standard across everywhere in the world. Um, what's interesting is that certain industries have definitely flourished in the 21st century, uh, so things like mining, drilling, and services like banking and the education system and tourism have done really well, but others have disappeared. So uh, unsurprisingly, textiles have moved entirely to Asia, but also auto manufacturing. The last auto manufacturing plant in Australia closed just a couple of years ago, and so all cars in Australia now have to be imported. The 2008 recession never hit Australia. It's defined as two consecutive quarters of economic decline, and it just didn't really hit Australia in a meaningful way. Um, and so if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, we do have some really good information on that in our Australia 101 episode. So I highly recommend listening to that if you're curious as to, you know, how that's even possible. And modern Australia is actually doing quite well. They signed the CPTPP in the end of 2018, which basically just made Australia even more neoliberal. And just in general, I think they have a steadily diversifying economy with a steadily diversifying population. And there's just a bright future ahead for Australia. You know, they've got a lot to look forward to. And that's it, guys. So that's everything for Australia, at least in my eyes. Maybe I missed something. If you think I did a terrible job or you just think, you know, he could have talked about this a little bit better, shoot me an email at Our Little World Podcast at gmail.com. 
I will get back to you as soon as possible. And if you think, and if it's important enough, we'll even do a special episode about it just to address it because we want to make sure that we are covering everything. Special thanks once again to Laura Jackson, my director of social media. She's been doing an amazing job and I appreciate her so much. I also want to give a big shout out of thanks to Alexander Brindley for his help researching this episode. And a final thanks once again to Habitat HQ for letting me use one of their private rooms to record this episode. Definitely tune in next week. We will be releasing our episode on Maori mythology. Should be really interesting. That one will be curated by the lovely Miss Laura Jackson. So definitely tune in to get a different voice. Um, But that's it. Thanks so much. See you next week.